Welcome to our season finale. Nope. <clears throat> I hate you guys. Welcome to our season two finale of the Such Nerds podcast, wrapping up Foundation and Empire by Isaac Asimov. And tonight we're accompanied by a fabulous guest host. Perfect. I am your guest co-host tonight, Mike. I use a Kindle. Yeah, that's right. I read everything on an electronic screen as I did these books. I'm hijacking your podcast. We're going to talk about the book in its finality, all of it together. And I'm joined by these wonderful three co-hosts. Please introduce yourselves. Well, I'm Peter. I'm the handsomest one on the podcast. And as usual, I'm in the buff. As I'm sure all of our listeners can see. <laughs> no, but they want to. Oh, they the can ones imagine. that have are now blind. They can imagine. So all of them just get to see at once. There you go. Well, it's like looking into the sun. It's glorious. <laughs> Yeah, so that's because you're so white. It's because yeah, I'm listening with my anti-radiation, yeah, like, your nuclear gel, silver nitride paint, tin-based ray refractory paint. <laughs> it's all tin-based. That's why it's blinding. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Peter. This is Dan from Los Angeles. I'm the oldest, but also the youngest-looking of the hosts tonight. You guys should see him. He looks like a beautiful old baby like a hundred dollars and i am jason i am neither the oldest nor the youngest however i probably look the oldest in any case i feel the oldest so i guess that counts for something the word is wizened i believe <laughs> wizened. <laughs> the wizest i'm the wizest yep Remember the you're definitely a whiz <clears throat> and i am also the editor so if you're hearing this, it was funnier than the alternative takes for our intro, <laughs> which may not say much, but, you know, we'll take what we can get sometimes. <laughs> this was the least worst of the takes. You're going to like it. All right. So I think we're represented by uh, three different time zones tonight. We need to find somebody on that central time. I was in central uh, last time, so I think we're yeah. covered as far as the mainland goes for this season anyway. Dan toggles. He toggles mm. West Coast and Central for us. So and I buried Russ in, uh, in the Pacific Ocean, so that's another time zone there. <laughs> Fantastic. Sleeping with the fishes. Although, for legal purposes, we don't actually know what happened to Russ. Exactly. Well, as usual, you guys can reach us on Podbean, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts under Such Nerds. So tell a friend. I like how Michael just took command of the podcast. That's I know. And what do pirates do? Mm -hmm. That's what we invited him on for to freshen things up here. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're mm -hmm. getting a little stale. Yeah. So, Mostly so welcome, damn. Mike. Let me be the first to say welcome to the Such Nerds podcast. It's a special it group of people, and the only people who have ever left the Such Nerds podcast 
uh, their whereabouts are relatively unknown at this point in time. Mm. So, so um, <clears throat> it's great to be here. And I guess I just want to be clear. Were you welcoming me or threatening me? <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Everything is veiled threats on this podcast. I love being here, everybody. Don't call for help. <laughs> yeah. Blink three times, Mike, if you're enjoying your time on this podcast. <laughs> Good thing it's not a video cast. <laughs> yes. That's the joke. All right. So I think uh, to kick things off here, let's indulge our audience and take some fan mail. Dan, would you would you care to share fan mail? Thanks, Jason. I would be honored <clears throat> to run through a few fan mails here from our sack of mail that we get every week here at, at such nerds headquarters so we have a interesting letter which is very timely given our intro from still waiting for a good foundation podcast who's it's obviously a very sarcastic listener that we have it goes as follows dear such nerds it sounds like you all have no idea what you were talking about could you please try to bring somebody on the podcast who can speak intelligently on the subject of science fiction? You know, I, th I, I got to say, Mike, you know, I know you walked right into it like a brick wall, <clears> but <throat> I have a feeling that question is probably going to be best answered by you. Well, yeah, let me I take mean, a little intro first, you know, because, you know. Okay. Sorry, Dan. I didn't mean to jump in there. Go for it. Such nerds, you know, we are of nothing but a, if not a customer focused podcast. Uh, so. We like to take these suggestions and just to, for everyone who's thinking of writing it at home, think it might be not worthwhile, we might not read it, we might not act on it. We take these things very seriously. So we read this in advance and, and pulled up the bat phone, as it were, and we brought in an expert uh, on foundation and science fiction in general. He reads way more than us, knows way more than us, and uh, he's he's we're pleased to have him here with us tonight, and that's Mike. So yeah, I'll turn it over to you, Mike. Uh, do you know anything about uh, science fiction that you could speak intelligently about? So this is a little awkward because I was under the impression that this was a podcast on humanizing serial killers. Will we be talking about that at all tonight? Or is that, is that something else that I misinterpret the email? That's a such merge, such merge podcast with an M. Oh my gosh. This is weird. Um, yeah. I mean, pretend maybe to speak intelligently. <laughs> oh, he's really good at that. Hmm. <laughs> This does sound quite interesting. I love science fiction. How does that? Is that good? It was horrible, but it's in no a worse, good way. It's no worse than we have already. As yeah. dialogue, so, hey. Now I have shown how little I know and how ignorant I am. Okay. Um, so in all seriousness, I guess I am probably a super sci-fi nerd. I, I read a ton of, I'd say, the modern sci-fi, a lot of the older sci-fi the, the different genres of space opera, of um, the military sci-fi, of like the, the exposés that are supposed to be representative of different cultural times. And I've even gone so far that I'm in the process of writing my own sci-fi book, which is a children's book, and I'm hoping to turn it into a graphic novel. Um, so those are all the things that I've done, whether I can speak intelligently on them or actually remember them during the podcast is going to be another question, but I'll give it a shot. Nice. Well, that sounds pretty impressive for my corner because I've written no science fiction books and I've only read uh, clearly two science fiction books by by the judging of this podcast. Um, so, yeah, that sounds so hopefully our friend 
still waiting for a good foundation podcast, uh, will have uh, a feeling that, um, you know, that she or he or they are being listened to. So thanks, Mike. And, you know, right. Dan, I'll, I'll jump in just a little bit here because I'm not trying to alienate. And that means, you know, make them feel like they're not part of our community. It doesn't mean like in the science, you know, fiction sense of alien, uh, like turn them into an alien. So I'm not trying to alienate. Our... I think that might be alien eyes. Alien eyes. OK, sorry. Yeah, I misspoke there. Sorry. Good. Good point. Um, so I'm not trying to alienate our um, our fan. But I would like to, you know, challenge a little. They sound, you know, and I hate to say this because it probably sounds bad. They do sound a little bit pretentious because, you know, we're all kind of just trying to figure our way through life, aren't we? Like, no, who, who's really an expert? Who knows everything? Nobody's going to know everything, right? So, you know, we're all on the journey. <clears throat> we're on the journey together on this podcast. Peter, you okay? <clears throat> Something in your throat? And, ah. uh, <laughs> And uh, even even when we think we say the most important things, there's probably somebody out there in the world who's going to say something more important than us someday. So, um, so I just like to ask this listener to be patient and and help us along the way because if they know things that we don't know, like share it, bring it, you know, send it our way, educate us mm-hmm. so that we can be more intelligent and offer other listeners a good experience. But yes, uh, let's a- let's enjoy the journey together. I think that's my. It's a good point, Jason. Request. I think I think the that um, you know the the feedback is encouraged, and um, you know hopefully you can be a little bit more patient and wait. Uh, maybe this podcast will be good, but if not, then maybe next season's podcast will be even better. And that brings us to the topic of our second fan mail from our listener. Anything you can read, I can read faster. <clears throat> which um, that I'm sure you can. It checks out. Dear such nerds. Are you going to read book three? If so, are you going to keep me waiting for a month? Answer to this is yes, and also yes. So thanks for writing in, and you can read, I can read faster. And stay tuned for season three after this podcast is over. And one month passes. That's all I've got time for right now for <laughs> fan mail. And I'll turn it back over to, to you, Jason, uh, to, to for the what summer, about, maybe. What about fan female? Or we not have one of those yet? Uh, I think it's male, M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E, but, you know, that that's a topic for our homonyms podcast, which is a, a different day. Jason, can you share the email address that you can share fan mail with for our listeners so they can follow along with us? The best way for fans to reach us is actually to visit our webpage, www.suchnerds.com. And there is a form at the bottom of the very front page or the first page or the main page um, you can just fill that out and it will get to us and we will, uh, respond to you in a timely fashion or, and, or read your email on the show and respond to it live. And I, and I just, record I just it. want to clarify on like a lot of web forms. We, we welcome fan mail from robots. So if you are a robot, there's no captcha images or anything to discriminate against your fan mail submissions. So feel free to submit as many robot mails as you, as you feel need to. So, Equal Jason, you got a summary for like us? That. Yes. It, you know, Dan, in fact, I do. It's a little bit brief, but I thought it was important to, um, you know, cater a little bit to those fans who maybe have already read the book and they're just, you know, skipping through the, the book summaries to get to the season that, you know, of the book that they're currently reading. So in short, in the book Foundation and Empire, there's there's two main parts. 
So in the first part, it's largely about the quest of an imperial general named Bel Rios and his quest for glory in conquering the foundation at the edge of the galaxy. But his ambition has its costs. The last great emperor of the First Galactic Empire arrests him for treason in the process. The foundation survives as a result, and the empire essentially fixes itself. In part two, the foundation proceeds along uh, to a state of aristocratic decadence, I'd like to say. And part two is largely about a character called the Mule. It also covers a journey of a small group of foundationers who are trying to at first save the foundation from its decadent authoritarian government that is buckling under its own weight. But then the Mule's forces enter the scene and proceed to conquer foundation territories one planet at a time. So they shift their attention to trying to save the foundation from the mule. Little did they know, the whole time, they were carrying the mule in their little posse and handing him to the minds of their fellow foundationers to manipulate into submission. In the end, the mule almost gets the location of the second foundation, but the poor psychologist who figured it out meets his demise at the hands of our first substantial and in the end essential strong female character in the series beta i prefer to call them foundation foundationlings 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 so you're off the terminites oh uh well yeah they're not terminites anymore right they're well they've expanded beyond terminus terminus is still the the capital of the foundation right right but the rest of them are foundation foundationlings i can't even say (laughs) foundationlings foundationers i I can say it in my head just fine Mm. well yeah thanks for that summer jason yeah no problem so um you know no of course we all know you know what's gone on in the book we've had some other bunny trails of topics throughout our season um but perhaps to get things started since you know mike is joining us for the first time um let's uh let's get a sense of you know what kind of person mike is because we've all defined our kind of foundation persona who we associate with strongly um i'd like to ask mike to just share with us which character in at least you know book one and book two i know you have a little bit more experience than we do with this in the past um but in book one and book two which character do you most strongly associate with yourself with so this is going to be really embarrassing because I don't remember the names of a lot of these. I can tell you the plots, but the names just fly off of or out of my brain. So help me as I try and figure figure this out. But the planet where they go to the honeymoon and originally meet the mule, is that Calgon? Calgon. Calgon? Yes. Calgon. Depends who you ask. It could be Calgan or it might be Caladan, depending on Cal- his mind. Calgan. <laughs> Um, I really want to fashion myself as the dictator of Calgan, who we see again at the very end of the book, um, dressed in the nines. And I feel like he's really kind of he's grown as a character uh, quite a bit. I feel like he he was a warlord and then an aspiring dictator and then kind of a right hand chief of staff. Keep things going. Um, So we saw a lot of maturity uh throughout the life of this character and he was really flushed out nicely so i think that's who i'd like to see myself as is the the warlord dictator chief of staff of calgon 
Interesting. I don't think they ever name him either. So I think you're the warlord of Calgan is probably the closest thing he has to a title. Brilliant. And I, I like yeah, how and... you I like how you explain how they fleshed him out so nicely because I think he actually <laughs> he commanded uh, at least seven sentences out of one of the later chapters of the book, uh, for sure at minimum. Like seven sentences yeah. were just you know it was like all his dialogue, and I think one of them actually, like the sentence almost finishes before Pritcher remembers him right as he's describing himself. <laughs> So that's like the real descriptive sentence. So we get a lot out of that half sentence or two thirds of a sentence before Pritchard, um, you know, really dot, dot, dot into realization. So, yeah, good. I'm really memorable good. in my own mind, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. That pretty much sums up Mike as a person. He's fairly memorable in his own mind. Well, <laughs> he knows a good, he knows a good ship when it comes around and uh, can be the right hand man on uh, for the mule be uh, our special guest on such a nerd podcast so i think it really ties together very nicely mike would you say he knows his ship <laughs> i don't get it could, you could say that well you know mike i have to say that i was a fan of the description of the the monocle and the and the flowing fur cape purple fit fur cape or whatever it was so i <laughs> I can see how that how you latched on to that character, and we definitely brought him up in our in our discussions as well. He stood out for us as well. So that's I was I was about thirty seconds away from putting purple pants on for tonight's call, um, but I am I am actually calling you from a garage because my son is going down to sleep right now, and I chose sweatpants over it uh, for for warmth and longevity. Uh, but yeah, I was actually aspiring to dress like the the warlord of Calgon as well. Unfortunately for Mike, this this podcast is filmed from the waist up. Oh, is it here? Uh, I'm actually it's wearing. Because I'm not wearing right pants. Now. I'm actually wearing purple pants. Yeah. Little did you know, I've come prepared for this exact question. Well, I'm pants. down to the skin myself, so. Um, so I think uh, maybe it's just a quick chance for the rest of us to to get the juices flowing here to go around and just reaffirm or maybe redirect our, our associate, you know, our character of choice that we associate with like the series. Peter, are you, uh, are you oh, still, uh, no, you I'm, evolved I'm, from I'm... a salver. You, you started out as salver Harden, and then you evolved to be Hober Mallow by the end of book one. Um, where are you at now that we've gotten past or through book two? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that I have like almost a supernatural ability to manipulate the emotions of others. So I'm probably the mule now, but I mean, I am also, you know, always, always down to the skin. So I think I'm probably still Hober Mallow. <laughs> but Peter, I think that the mule superpower was more dynamic than just making people see red rage. So you, you are very good at manipulating emotion. But it's, I don't want to say one-dimensional. Is there a nicer way of saying that? Well, I mean, you nearly, could say that's that to all the fawning Peterites. two-dimensional. <laughs> Listen, I'm number one in everything, and that includes being one-dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> one integer shy, shy of two-dimensional, right? Yes, yeah. nearly. Yeah. Nearly. <laughs> nearly two dimensions so well thank you yes. for that peter so thank you for that inconclusive answer so you're either the mule yeah, no, or hover Hober mal <laughs> oh you're hover mal okay you're almost the mule but actually still hover mal got it yeah. all right thank you 
Um, all right, Dan, you're uh, you are up. So last time we did this, I had I had identified uh, with Ponyets because he's he's trying to just do his day job of being a trader, and he's hauled in to try to rescue uh, a mission on uh, you know from from the. The I forget the the planet Ascone. Yeah, Ascone, and uh, you know it's kind of like just just trying to deal with the day to day and having just ridiculous plots thrown in his lap. And so you know that's still pretty much pretty pretty common. But when you you think about the character arc of uh, Lilith and Devers is very similar. I was thought thought back to the chapter where he is first interviewed by Rios, and he's kind of like, well, look, you know, I'm a Foundation guy, but but you know it's who really cares who's in charge? People like me that are just doing the business day to day, you know, let's say there's a big overthrow that leaders get tossed aside. You know, it's not going to affect me. I'm not going to, you know, there's a new leader in charge. It's not going to bother me. Nothing's going to change about my day to day. It's just going to be a, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss type of situation. So I did find a little bit of, of, uh, identification with that character. However, I, do not wish to die in a slave mine um, in my future, so I'll probably stick <laughs> yes. with Ponyets as far okay. as my right. That's, yeah. choice. Although I do like the hundred thousand credits, that part was nice. Yes, um, and you know, to think my descendants are would be like like Beta as far as uh, that would be nice too. But in the in the discreet, selfish sense, uh, I don't want to be uh, dead in salt mines. So I'll stick with Ponyets for my answer. Well, Beta was the progeny of Mallow. Was she? Yes. Somebody was, wasn't somebody the progeny of Deavers? So, no, uh, um, that was um, Torin's father, Fran Solo. <laughs> All right. Well, Fran Solo. Well, Fran Solo is our modern day Lathan Devers, right? Remember yeah, the quote? Yeah, I want nothing to do with that guy yeah, as my progeny. Yeah. So, he had, we'll stick with Pinets even further now. Okay, good. <laughs> So yeah, so so you're you're not interested in becoming a uh, a one-armed winter soldier of the caves. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't do much soldiering. It just is more yeah. talking soldiering really. Yeah. What about you, Jay? Yeah, thank you, Dan. I have to say, you know, early in our book 2 journey, I had kind of thrown um thrown my my name in the hat of identifying with Mr. Pritcher. Hans, as Peter calls him. <laughs> Hans, He's here to Hans Pritcher. <laughs> so, um, yeah, actually, you know, it's like, um, I think it's a similar vibe that I got from when I, and, and you know, identified with Pyrene. You know, somebody who's passionate and sincere about their cause, almost to a fault. And I find myself kind of stumbling over my, my passion and devotion at times. Um, in in a similar way, and I think uh, even though Hans Pritcher, you know, was like Rambo in the in the jungles of um, Cambodia or wherever the heck that w took place, and then you know ultimately submitted to the mule in the end, I still kind of associate with that that type of a character. So I I'm I'm sticking with Mister Mister Hans Pritcher. Hans Pritcher. <laughs> So. Hans Christian Pritcherson. Yeah, Hans Christian Pritcherson. I appreciate that all of you guys took this really seriously, and you're like, well, these are some of the character traits that really define me, and, and this is me as a person and how I really approach things. And I'm like, I want the guy wearing the purple pants. <laughs> and the monocle, don't forget. And the yeah, monocle, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's just fancy. 
Mr. Actually, Everyone he wore the monocle before the mule fixed his brain. So it was definitely <laughs> uh, just a piece of glass. It was nothing yes. that supported his eyesight in any way. Yeah, the, the peanut monocle, the peanut <laughs> warlord of Calgan. He really saw the potential there. Uh, it's like a, a classic uh, billionaire story who saw the potential in a college student and encouraged them to drop out to really pursue something and make the best of themselves. Mm. When you think about Mr. Peanut, though, Monocle, top hat, shoes, cane, high class trappings, no pants or clothes at all. So it really seems more like Peter's Peter's shift than anybody else. That's why they call me Peanut. So Peter, <laughs> our fear, fearless leader of this podcast, or Mike, our pirate leader or host of this podcast, where shall we venture next? What seas shall we conquer I think an obvious one is um, how does this book compare to the first book? What are our opinions of this gentleman and Mike and pirates? Dan, do you want to start it off this time? I think it's it's a little more cohesive. I mean, the last one was just so stop-start, and it, it was clearly sort of glued together from a number of different short stories that, you know, there was no long story arc every time. We'd made a point on the previous podcast where every time you got excited about a character or a scene, it was like done 10 pages later and then they smash cut 100 years in the future. And so I think the good part about this book is there's some real meat to dig into as far as the story arcs are concerned. So I thought that was a plus. It's not like Isomoff was just learning to use iMovie or something like that. Yeah. Just smash cut, smash cut, smash cut. Yeah. Star yeah, White. So on that front, it was I thought it was good. Um, and then it kind of sets the stage for the next book. It basically, as far as the story arcs go, the second book has a lot meatier story arc because you basically have two story arcs covering the two parts of the book. Whereas the first book, you kind of have, you know, they're setting up a lot of the whole foundation history. And there's, you know, four to five different sections that have differing characters. And, and you can commit a lot more to the characters in the second book because you know, they're with you. Whereas in the first book, the characters would be in and out. You know, you think about, um, you think about Weenus and his story arc, you know, the guy is literally with you for 10 minutes. So, um, I think with the second book, you got a lot more, uh, uh, you know, experience with the characters and a little more depth to them. Right. He's not just snidely whiplash, you know, <laughs> two dimensions, two dimensional characters. We know what you think about people like that. <clears throat> Well, I, I actually don't because I'm a one-dimensional character. So you'll have to <laughs> kind of expand my mind a little bit about what a two-dimensional character means. He's a point. Peter is a ray. I will try not to duplicate the things Dan already said. I think that it's um, it was nice to have a longer stretch of story to sink my teeth into, to chew on, to process. So, yeah, we got through this kind of interesting arc through the, the battle with the Empire it did seem like part one ended relatively abruptly after their failed efforts at Trantor. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, like Rios has been arrested and uh, oh yeah, everything's like cool back in the foundation. It, it seemed like there was a, a, a almost anticlimactic because it, um, it ended so fast and there wasn't really a lot of meat on that climax. But the story was interesting and it, it, it set up a lot of, you know, pieces of a picture of the ga the Galactic Empire and that kind of decadent over politicking, you know, eating itself alive kind of situation. 
Um, and then the second part with the mule was when, you know, when I read through it, I think, uh, you know, Peter, you've mentioned a few times the, the Magnifico was like highly suspect, but at the same time, the, not all the pieces were really there until you get kind of to the very end and, and learn and realize all the things that happened and how they all fit into this kind of, you know, Kaiser Soze situation. Um, and I thought that was, that was pretty interesting and yeah, it really kind of left me ready for the next book. It's like, okay, now it's like, now what, what happens next? You know, like we know who the mule is, the, you know, they've confronted him and he walked away and let them live. Like what's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the, uh, like in the first book, it was like big jumps. Like they kept jumping like 50 years, you know, 20 years, hundred years, whatever. Now we're like 300 years in and the jumps are getting kind of smaller. We're kind of like honing in or zooming in on the time period of the, uh, the foundational era that is, you know, of the most importance. So I see Mike, you know, looking around and he's probably trying not to spoil stuff for us. So, but that's how, that's my impression coming through the second foundation. It feels like, you know, yeah, we're really building momentum here and I'm, I'm, pretty excited going into the third book do you think the third book will just be like all contained within like one hour or 24 hour period like at fox show 24 each vignette gets gets faster yeah the following short story they've got my daughter over 10 minutes yeah i'm gonna fly the in the helicopter across the galaxy well, <laughs> the nucleics are in my daughter <laughs> And my daughter's tooth. My daughter has a daughter. And she's made of nucleics. <laughs> I need 10,000 pounds of tin by this afternoon. What do you think, Peter? Peter? You next? Uh, no. No, I'm not. I think you are. <laughs> I, I Again, I'm going to reiterate a lot of things that have already been said. I did enjoy that there were some longer... Um, that it was basically a longer story. And I, th I kind of expected that based off of what I knew of the construction of the first book. It was basically like a collection of short stories that have been kind of crammed together to make a novel. Um, I did not feel like we got that much character development. Like there was plot development, but I don't know that I saw a lot of like growth or changes in our characters as a whole right they were kind of like these are who they are i think maybe beta like beta got like more anxious as everything went on are we pronouncing that name right is it beta, is it beta? yeah yeah it's bay like, it's bay beta beta yeah i thought it might be beta is b-e-t-a but b-a-y-t-a is this like a because I, I hear beta so is that some sort of a, like a dig, like a, a dig within a dig around like, well, it's a female protagonist. I, uh, I don't let's think name so. her something that means secondary. Yeah. It seems a bit Ooh. much. Of Ooh. I like, I like your hidden like misogyny. Beta, like the Greek letter B like the, the this B, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm. think beta in the 1952 or whatever, probably didn't have the same inclination I, I, that it does. In the I, attributed I, house. Like, I, I disagree. I attributed it as like, oh, and, this is like space language drift. Well, that like Isomoff seems to enjoy like 
Harry is spelled H-A-R-I instead of H-A-R-R-Y. Um, so it was like, oh, Beta, like a star, like, you know, Beta Centauri. Well, now it's a woman's name and it's B-A-Y-T-A. Yeah. I think if we've learned anything is that we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know how to pronounce the name. So anybody who their opinion is just as equally valid as ours yeah, in terms exactly. of how you pronounce things and what they're supposed to be. And, and uh, you know, so certainly possible. Right, well, I'll do my best to, to pronounce things differently than you guys. Yeah, you can, you know, you, do just you, to confuse do you. the listeners. Do you. Yeah, and I'm sure yeah. if we listen to that uh, that horrible book on tape converted to digital version of <laughs> the Isomov series and those just terrible 1950s accents and, and pronunciations, <laughs> like uh, they'll offer us a, a third opinion on how it should be pronounced. Yeah. Do you think they'd be better if they were like old time radio? <clears throat> <laughs> much better it's, it's like monty python they don't have any women so they just have men pretending to there's one woman voice and they have a man <laughs> pretending to do woman's voice <laughs> you know, like, why there's something wrong with my parents <laughs> exactly it's like john cleese is the voice of beta i was really hoping that people would talk like this well that's how like old time radio that's how bill rios would talk you know like he's literally I can totally see Lathan Devers talking like that, Peter. <laughs> Maybe even Onam Bar. In the future, everybody's yeah. voice sounds like this. Yeah, he's a patrician. He's a patrician. Well, that's that's me, the mule's voice, as we've as we've already established. Right. Is he he talks like Mickey Mouse? Exactly. Oh, Magnifico, and, and I was reading some summaries about it. And the Magnifico Gigantus, they they have everybody's last names, which I didn't realize at the time. Can you guess? Do you know what Beta and and Torin's last name is? Snuffle up a guess. Oh, it's it's quite Torin and Beta Dorel, much like our friend Forel from from prior episodes. They are the Dorels. That so, made me happy. Yeah, like a room understandably. With that understandably. Yeah, they refer to them as the Durrells, baiting Beta and and Torin. Cool, strong name. So it's good. It's good to have a strong name in space. Yeah. So I um I was disappointed that there wasn't more character development, which was kind of something I was hoping for because I feel like that's really important for humanizing a story. You know, there was a sense of panic and anxiety, like about like this steady collapse of the foundation and it was suspenseful. I did find like the last couple chapters. I was like, all right, this is, this is great. Like compelling writing. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't feel like that for a lot of the book, but the last couple chapters definitely are worth reading. And I don't know how much of the, the kind but, of Peter, floor... hold on. I got to stop you there for a second. So no, two don't. things I want to confirm. Firstly, are you saying that book two is also still not the worst book you've ever read i mean it's not the worst book ever. <laughs> and then last no, I, you know I, the this, second thing i want to ask good. you to clarify what your recommendation is there is are you recommending that people pick up the book and read the last three chapters yes i would say <laughs> cut to the chase and read the last smash three cut chapter you know smash the last three chapters two. and we're just... in the middle right <laughs> okay. i mean I don't know how necessary, like, in all honesty, like, I don't know how necessary, like, the first half of the book is, right? Like, it just, it, the, the takeaway that I got from the first half of the book was, oh, well, Harry Seldon predicts things and they become, they come true, right? 
So it's it the prophecies are are right. And then the second half of the book is like the prophecies are wrong because of unforeseen circumstances. Right? That's kind of like the overarching thing that happens in these two books if you were to compare them side by side. I like that the first book had some continuation from or like the first half of the second book has continuation from the first novel. But you're right, it ends very anticlimactically. Like our characters could have essentially done nothing and it seems like the empire would have consumed itself because the ambitious general is uh shut down by the guarded emperor and then or the ambitious general would have turned his eyes inwards and unthroned the weak emperor right so that was just all kind of like fixing itself i feel like we could have summed that up in kind of a chapter the second one is more compelling it's like there's this threat of invasion there's inner internal conflict of the of the foundation we do have some characters that can kind of carry us along like uh like hans pritcher or hans han pritcher han pritcher han solo han, han solo, solo pritcher, pritcher. he's a he's a compelling character beta is interesting her husband is a total dud mm. um, he makes a sandwich for her one day when she gets home from I mean, the a tough day cool at, thing the, he does at the, hold like, on hold on he makes her a sandwich when she comes home from working at the factory <laughs> i just realized like i guess he was like out doing stuff but it's like what is he like he's not really working like he's just he's letting her mom. run off and do work uh, at the factory and he's just kind of like home putzing around with did, a like, couple pieces of bread and some tuna or something fish. I just have this image of Isomoff like at his typewriter thinking like I'm being so progressive right, right. now. It's a man making a sad man making he's making food yeah. for his wife. Yeah. He thinks he's being progressive. No one's going to believe this cuz it's not like they're This is the true them. sign of science fiction. This is yeah. the fiction of science fiction. This Everything fiction. else is like believable. Like this is what really is fantastical. <laughs> I will make this come true. Oh. My, my nucleic trash can that's not unbelievable but a man yeah. making a sandwich for a woman well the, the the believable part is that it's not a great sandwich it makes a sandwich <laughs> that's true. it's like prison sandwich like one slice of bologna and like met mustard not even a mustard packet squirt of mustard it's not even spread evenly the yellow one it's not like the, the spicy one yeah the saddest sandwich of all time he's a mole man he lives in a cave a mole you know, give him a it's, break it's a moleman Dan, yeah. well, we should explore this first. A worldly foundationer like her, because they're like literally from a cave yeah, underground. Cave, cave dwellers, cavemen. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Be like this is the greatest sandwich ever. And she's like, I, <clears throat> I, I guess I'm just wondering now that we're talking about it. They have machines that will turn iron and other metals into gold. They have handheld nuclear everything and force fields and lasers and lasers that go through force fields. But you still <laughs> make a sandwich by hand, and it's not very good. Mm. Well, all right, to be a... fair, like they haven't reconnected interstellar trade to the the deli meat planet. To, mm. And and to be fair, they got to have something to wrap with all the newspapers that they're printing their yeah. news on. What what are they going to wrap it if they don't make some sandwiches? That's why they need yeah. the tin. It's so that they're they all... can wrap all those all those delicious sandwiches. <laughs> all the, the foil sided paper, right? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're all they they're need all that tin. Ship. It was a job creation initiative from go. the foundation political system. 
Right. Yeah. We need to put our useless husbands to work. Get those women back in the factories. We got a war to win. But yeah, he did make a great sandwich, or not. But that was the exactly. high point of his. Uh, and the, and she sent him out at the end to like go get like supplies or whatever. Uh, Come to the grocery store. Grocery list. Right. Like, right. I don't know if he's just a useless idiot that she's getting out. Oh, here, get this list of items that just like scavenger hunt like a child. <laughs> get out of the way. This will keep him occupied for a fucking hours. steam. Six yeah. elephant ears. All right, I'll be back in five hours. No I problem. need a left-handed screwdriver. Yeah, it's literally he's on like an abandoned planet that's just like stripping down assets, and he's going on this ridiculous scavenger. <laughs> this psychologist. Here, go get me these lists. This list, please, and make sure that that uh, it's fresh. And then yeah, yeah, that's his second thing he does. He doesn't do anything else other than con- confront the mule guy on on Caldan. That's about the only thing he does. I can see the like the gears grinding in Mike's head right now, thinking like. This has totally happened to me. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wonder, Mike, are are you stalling? Because we still haven't heard from you on, you know, what you thought of book two versus book nope. one. I'm ready to go. All right, whenever, let's have it. Let's hear it now. Yeah, so I like book one a lot more, and I did not like the direction of book two. And here's why. I So the why. writing is not great. When you look at Asimov's other books, especially the robot series, they're so verbose and and the world building and the characters and everything else is fantastic. This is basically a book on sociology or a hypothesis on sociology and what would happen over a set amount of time, thinly veiled as a sci-fi adventure. And for me, what was truly mind-blowing, I think, was two things the first time I read these books, was, number one, the the concept of jumping through time and having different lead characters and the the concept of, like, they just disappear again. And coming to terms with that was something I had never done before with characters that I had read in books. And number two was the concept of trying to get across this idea of, okay, like, it's a strategy. If this happens... What would happen next? And sociologically, where would the world go? And the point that came across to me was, okay, they're by themselves. The first thing that might happen is religion. The next thing that might happen is trade. The next thing that might happen is this and this and this. It's kind of not just how would how would society evolve on one world, but how would it evolve across a galaxy? And then how would that interact with this dying federation? Um, and what's the engagement? And I was really excited about this, like the small vignettes that basically move the plot as what's happening across society and caring a lot less about the individual characters. They were just the plot devices to get us to the point of this is where society goes. This is the strategy. This is how things would evolve. Um, and book one was mind blowing. And I know that, you know, the recently I, I read a book that came out, what, 50 years later, 60 years later called sapiens where this guy is talking about kind of the history of of society across the world and he's talking about a very similar thing that said everybody was tribal and then religion brought people together and then business and currency was kind of the next thing that people believed in and then this and then this so for me it was oh my gosh like this is a whole new lens on how societies grow and how they engage and forget like the sci-fi part just makes it really fun to read and it's each one of these small vignettes that's super exciting. And then you jump from that mind-blowing component to book two. And it's like, well, you 
you wrote more. You, you definitely did a little bit more about plot building and you kind of added some more things, more so for the mule story than the others. But I don't really care. I want you to tell me more about strategy and society and how it's going to interact and where it's going to hit than just like, oh, we have these characters that are mildly more likable than some of the others doing a little bit more. Like I didn't get that as the objective of these books, at least the first time I went through everything. It's like, no, this is this is like a guidebook on society written as a sci-fi space opera. Um, so I definitely didn't like the way that book two went because like the character development was less exciting than kind of the, the underlying themes that went with it. And I think it distracted from I th- it. I think that's interesting. That's like a really interesting point. And I'm going to totally cut Peter off because I know he inhaled to say something, but I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. Because okay. I know Peter's going to say My, something more important, important so I may as well okay, go first. Get the unimportant stuff out yeah, of the way and, first. Yeah, and like set set the stage for him to really come in with the zinger. You know, <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th- that's interesting, and that's like very much aligned with kind of how I experienced the book, the first book. Um, it was like really interesting to me to think about this kind of evolution of this human group through the stages of like society building and you know organizing around you know different paradigms as you get bigger and as you start to you know pull in other societies into your society and assimilate and how does that work and the balance of trade as this kind of stabilizing force you know when you know the the force of just using this religious you know religion of science thing you know kind of runs its course but i would I would just challenge a little bit kind of where where you're you're carrying us in, in your description of book two, um, that it's like more of a focus on characters because I think there's also like bigger concepts there too. Maybe I and I, I have to say, maybe not as much with section one or part one, but it's still like a it's kind of like a big deal because now you've got this group that like isn't really a threat and is now kind of big enough to be a threat, but still not big enough to really win by attrition, right? So the fact that they're, that is still able to overcome the empire who kind of collapses on itself because they've become overly politicized and um, and their focus is, is inward instead of, you know, for the benefit of society. I think that's still kind of a big idea. And that's, you know, a little bit of the mystery around like how did we defeat the british when you know u.s was fighting for independence and that kind of thing like the british was like the strongest military force in the world at the time they'd colonized most of the globe how is it possible that some you know collection of ragtag colonies could overpower them and you know but there are ways there are ways that uh there are other factors that that play into that and i thought that was kind of an interesting piece of the of the first part and then the second part, we talked a little bit about this, is like the whole, you know, o- Uber, Obermensch idea, like the, the Nietzsche Superman kind of evolving amidst other, you know, lesser humans. You know, he's a post-human and, you know, we've got these other humans, although he can't procreate. So will that, will that mutation, you know, actually create a new species or not? It's still not clear, but it's still a big idea. Like there's a lot to think about there and, you know, to explore kind of how, how this kind of evolutionary human can fold into a current 
um, society of of Homo sapien humans is is still kind of an interesting concept. So I think there's a little bit more there, but I do agree. You know, he he spent a lot more time on it that may not maybe not all of that was in the interest of expanding on these bigger ideas. There may have been a little bit more of trying to make a living by word count kind of thing coming in there for mm-hmm. sure. I guess another perspective because I agree with what you're saying. One lens from which I would say maybe I've been thinking about this is that. In a lot of the different vignettes that have occurred up to this point, one of the major protagonists has been the actual timeline and what happens in the timeline. Whereas with the mule, to your point, you're seeing character development, you're seeing a wrench thrown into the plans, and the protagonist is really no longer what is society going to do, and more so what are the characters doing and how are they coming together to battle against something. And while that's definitely interesting and and a compelling story, for me, because this was just so mind-blowing uh, as a concept the first time I read it, I was more excited about seeing the growth of the settings and how the worlds engage with each other than any individual story that took place within that setting. I, I thought, of it, uh, touching on Jay's point, it would be interesting to know what Peter's thoughts are about a superhuman, post-human person in, interacting with regular homo sapiens of the regular human race. <laughs> Well, as a god among men, um, I just, you know, I just look at everyone with pity. It's like dealing with children all the time. Like I, I'm trying to lift you all up, and just nobody's receiving the word. But, but we know? can't lift because we don't have the capacity. You have to come down, Peter. That's why the Ubermensch has to come down from the it's, mountain it's the alleg- into the. It's people. the allegory of the cave all over again. Exactly. Right? Like I left mm-hmm. the cave. I can see everything. I can see the world as it really is. Yeah. And now or I have to go back into the cave. And be potentially persecuted while trying. Peter, to... does your church have bishops, and um, how do I be one? Yes. Well, we have. Fr- so we actually have franchises. We don't yeah. actually have bishops. <laughs> we covered that in the last episode. Beside, for a nominal fee, it seems like you can get whatever position you want within the church. Well, yeah, it's like the Catholic Church all over again. That's the tithing process. Very similar. Right. Very similar. Except the but, only, uh, except the high priest can marry in this church, right? Uh, the patron listen, saint I want of to reproduce and make as many suckers, I mean, followers as I can. So it's it's very much like the Sea Org that mentioning Tom Cruise before, uh, the Scientology model where you have the underlings doing all the legwork and the uh, church leaders, you know, reaping in all the benefits. Right, exactly. And is there sweet. some sort of an economic model in this, perhaps like a, a reverse triangle type thing? Yeah, so basically, yeah. like, everyone at the bottom pays money to try to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And then those people pay more money to try to get to the next level. And at Sorry, the very top— Slow they, down. Slow down. What? Are you familiar with trickle-down economics? This is trickle-up economics. <laughs> what do we feel like Isomoff was trying to tell us or say, like, with the two parts of the book or the book as a whole? Oh, I thought you—Peter, you don't have something— more no, important I had a to say. That's all oh, I really? Oh, okay. I don't have anything s- smart out here to say at this point. Oh, okay. All right. Dan said it for me and did much better job than I. <laughs> joke just writes itself. <laughs> he so set you up for the layup. I guess there. it it fell in the basket on its own accord. The, yeah. Much like the empire <laughs> fell apart on its own accord. Yeah, pretty much. Like how I tied that back in? Huh? Wow. Mm. Bring us home. So, what was your question, Peter? 
what, what do we think Isamoff was trying to accomplish with this book? Mm. What do we feel like he was trying to accomplish? He's trying to get paid for another. I was going to say he's trying was. to like make the rent, right? He's just cynical money grab. He's just you know stretching out his muscles to preview for his autobiography. Yeah, it's it's much just like practicing. That. No, I, I mean I think for with regards to the book, like you know. Um, the points Mike brought brought up are very interesting because you kind of think back to the first book and you have all these sort of, you got Mallow, you got Selden, you got all these great guys. Um, and, you know, in the second book, the characters really aren't all that likable. I mean, you basically got, um, you know, Beta is sort of the closest thing to, I mean, I guess Ebling Miss is kind of, you know, an admirable figure and he's he's kind of this, this excellent oncologist. Yeah, he's fun, at least, right? That's like, kind of my favorite, but I don't like, I don't really like any of the other people, you know? And it's like, ugh, you know? I don't know. So, what, about Han, what about Han Pritchard? Han Pritchard? I mean, yeah, fine. He's there to pump you up, man. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's it's like, uh, his, uh, like, his, like, Topper Hartley in, uh, in Hot Shots Part 2, basically. That's how I, <laughs> I view him. Just a ridiculous Rambo-like figure, but in a satirical kind of manner, because the, the whole game is rigged anyway. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you obviously have to move the ball down the field a little bit with regards to, uh, you know, the arc of, of history, um, with regards to the foundation of the second foundation, but it seems kind of like, you know, the, you know, more interested to find out what happens with the second foundation, that revelation at the end, you know, where that, that will be the discern discerning point about what, how it, the, the ultimate struggle between the mules force and then the second foundation psychologist about who's going to have the control for the future of the, of sort of the human galaxy there. Um, but, but I mean, the, you, you look back on it now and it's like, well, we identify who the mule is and that's sort of the deviation from the Selden plan, but it seems like something that he's actually accounted for, but there's not a whole lot that really happens, you know, right. in, in, in summary. I mean, is what's the point of the first part of the book? I think right. they try to establish that the empire well and truly is finished because they have the last great general, and he's, you know, someone that they speak about him in the in the passages of the first, like, oh, he's going to be emperor, and he's just so great and wonderful. And as it turns out, they it becomes the the tautological sense that the empire is cooked because if somebody's good and great, then they're going to get wiped out and therefore only inept people are going to be in charge. And so they're destined to just collapse. So So, like crabs in a bucket. Yeah. I mean, there's just like, uh, yeah, there's sort of no hope for them. That's what they establish. And then, well, it's inevitable that the foundation will sort of succeed, succeed them. But then you get to the second book and realize that, you know, the foundation isn't all, all Southern rainbows as well. They have their own problems. Yeah. They've like stagnated under their own, like self-assurance. Yeah. Yeah. Their own inept, you know, it's it's like, I see you're inept emperor and I raise you an inept mayor, you know, and there's just like paper folding, you know, gardening bozo as the guy who's the mayor. It's the same issues that the, that the empire has. I mean, they can't be all Cobra Mallows, right? Clearly not. There's been hundreds of years since, Someone of Mallow's ilk sort of yep. breaks yep. the the halls of the foundation. It's just nothing but bureaucratic paper pushers. Or paper burners, incinerators. Yeah. <laughs> paper pushers, paper folders, paper scribblers, and then paper paper incinerators. Hey, Fran Fran Solo is no paper pusher. The man with the golden arm. 
He is a uh, chest-pounding <laughs> merchant of the trader class. So, Mike, what did you think? <laughs> did, like, what was the point of the first part of the book? <clears throat> I think it was another experiment to just show this is what would happen. Here's the last piece. And retrospectively, if he, if Asimov's point is to begin talking more about the characters and how they're engaging and what's happening in a slower time zone, this is that last domino falling over of here's how the empire finally falls. And here's how the, like, it's still strong. Here's how it actually topples over and the last piece that goes together and how that might have occurred. And one more of those hypotheses around social experiments. Okay. So I think it was really just to set the tone of this is the end. This is this is how it goes down. This is how it would have gone down um, and, and how an empire can fall, despite the fact that nobody believes that it will. Or even if there's really strong and capable people in leadership positions. Okay. That's probably too academic of an answer for for a fun podcast. No, no, that's so, okay. so, dude. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, this is the such nerds podcast. Exactly. Yeah, this isn't the so much fun podcast. That's a different. <laughs> that's Wednesday nights. Yes. Have we spent a lot of time debating between nerds and geeks, and and really identifying why we're nerds versus geeks? Well, I think it's self evident <laughs> in the, the the subject of the pot podcast. <laughs> Well, it's like that the old dorks say, are created equal. You're you're technically correct, which is the best kind of correct, you know. <laughs> that needs to be our new tagline. <laughs> no, no, no form of pedantry. To be fair, we are such nerds because Peter's wife called us such nerds on our first episode, and it stuck, and that's why we're such nerds. So it's, it's, it is have surveyed like, a neutral third party and they have named us as nerds. And that's what we're going with. So it's not we're not self-proclaimed, although we have become self-proclaimed. Um, but it did derive yeah. from a a an alternate party. Providing it was a title I, identified, I identified with it when I heard the podcast. I'm like, wow, these guys are huge nerds. Perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I was like. Yes, these are my people. You Mike know. doesn't really understand because he's not a real nerd. He's just nerd adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> I wear diapers. Is that what you mean? Yes. Should I just come out and admit it? Yeah. I'm still in diapers. To your point, Mike, I, we have not debated this, and you know we've kind of taken it for granted. I think I've heard them the words used interchangeably. I've I th my impression of a nerd is somebody who's a little bit more bookish, like academic, in their in their focus areas, but maybe equivalently focused on certain things of an academic nature as a geek would be focused on something of any arbitrary or fantastical or silly nature, such as a Pokemon fanatic or uh, anime fanatic or, you know, not things that are necessarily academically um, centered, but are a genre or a topic or a lifestyle that they just get totally obsessed with. So that's when I think Preferred. of geek, I think of somebody like geeking out on, you know, you could geek out on cars or geek out on, you know, musical equipment or something, you know, you can geek out on a lot of things. And I've heard that used as like a, a, uh, what is that? A verb geek out? Yeah. Um, yes. but nerd out, I don't think I've heard as much 
and uh you know nerd is like some you know i think people are called nerds when they know like more than everybody about something like academically like they know why an electronic circuit works not just because that it makes a cool sound you know yeah they're not obsessed with it they actually get it right yeah i like that definition there's if you go to Miriam webster the definition of the word nerd is the number one definition is a person who behaves awkwardly around other people and usually has unstylish clothes hair etc and then the second definition oh, it's is a, per- a person who <laughs> says hair so i don't know if that really applies a person oh, who is right. very interested in technical subjects computers etc and they say a nerd equals geek so it seems like mm. uh, there's a certain point that's that goes to the intellectual and academic pursuit um, like you're talking about. I think in the comp- popular culture, that seems to be what it is, where it's like, you know, like they, they give an example of like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's obviously like, you know, professional nerd, a theoretical physicist, runs a planetarium, and but like has sort of, you know, cachet in the culture as like somebody who's not an outcast because, you know, he's kind of come around as being a nerd. <laughs> That has doesn't have the social outcast portion of that uh, of that word as it's somewhat loaded. It just lacks the social tact of a socialized person. Yeah, right. I mean, but that's kind of thing. But it's interesting to bring him up at that because like he became popular, but then the more you hear of him, you realize, oh yeah, he's kind of like. He's <laughs> Wait, still did he awkward, like? Dude. Did he punch a child? I I yeah, know he's literally not. His... He's not operating on the on you know. You can see why he's a nerd how he got to be into books because doesn't have all the social graces. And uh, yeah. Like he's just not, he's just not socially graceful. I think he's yeah. had a, some major faux pas. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's not evil or anything. As no, far as but it's certain people, you know, are able to sort of navigate the social, you know, circumstances of a broad, broad variety of people and nerds traditionally are not those people, which comes first, the nerd or the social <laughs> outcast does the social outcast become nerd, or the nerd? I think the social outcast becomes a nerd. <laughs> I don't think. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think the nerd, like the nerding out or nerding on, you know, your areas of your natural areas of focus or things that you are interested in, drives you apart from the group because you don't align with what other people want to talk about, which is like you know, who threw the football the farthest yeah. on TV yesterday, you know? Yeah. That this is what Jason has told himself over the years. No, but I, I don't want to overcomplicate, but where does nerds the candy fit into this? In my mouth. <laughs> Doesn't. By <laughs> like the handful. Yeah. In your face hole. Yes. Roger that. I don't call it a face hole. Sorry. The, the, the importance valve located on your face. <laughs> <laughs> <Use> importance valve. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good segue. Uh, Mike, what is your favorite Isomoth space explosive? I have to go with Galaxy, but I've been really upset that EGADS isn't in there, and I'm waiting for it to occur in the next book. My fingers are crossed that we're going to see it. Wait, you read book. ahead? No, I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting. I'm, I'm, my fingers are crossed that I'll see it. So Galaxy is my favorite, but I'm, I'm holding out for EGADS. Is it Galaxy or Galaxy? Galaxy. Galaxy. I know we'll never know because Miz is dead. Yes. Or is it because they're all talking like this? <laughs> and the future of space. Yeah. Galaxy. It's like a it's like a Ford Motor Company uh you know marketing brochure of nineteen forty nine. Exactly. 
So, I mean, we've touched on a few things. I think, uh, you know, we asked you, Mike, about your favorite swear word. These are all things that we've covered through the season that, you know, we're just trying to, while you're here with us for this one recording, this one evening, you know, we want to you get will as not much be invited as possible. Um, you know, because your whereabouts will be unknown probably as of tomorrow morning. Um, mm. Now that you've touched it'll be the murder society. If we, follow, if we follow the history <laughs> track from last yeah. time, he's met me. So, um, so the one thing well, dirty in mountain time, he's getting yeah. closer by the minute, apparently. So the, the, there's, there's two things, two other things that maybe we should just, you know, put you on the spot for, um, and, and see where you stand. The, uh, one of them is the nucleics or atomics or however you want to refer to them. This whole idea that Isimov has of like, for some reason, for 50,000 years, we haven't been able to get out of our own way and solve the problems of, of energy supply. And, you know, the nuclear revolution that happened post-World War II is like still happening 50,000 years into the future, but it's stagnated. And now the foundation is going to take it to the next level and micro-nuclear devices. What, in your opinion, is the most far-fetched and ridiculous use of nucleics that you experienced in the the first two books i think that it's this concept that a trader has a ship and they're bouncing around and not part of the cargo but just every trader is equipped with a grab bag of goodies that are nuclear powered doodads in the same way that like you'll be like i got you a pencil and a hat and a notepad today and maybe a flashlight and a zip drive because people still give those out like every trader is like Here's my grab bag of goodies. And that when they go to these other planets, people are like, oh my God, I've never seen this before. It's kind of the concept of like, I don't know, if I visited New Zealand and I was like, I got you guys a notepad. Uh, I would like 10 pounds of gold or kilos, I suppose. I'd like 4.1 kilos of gold. And they're like, absolutely. I think that's the part that I love the most. It's actually tin though. Like it's usually tin, not gold. They're just sell selling tchotchkes for... Right. loads of tin. <laughs> yeah, they'll transmute all the gold they need. Thank you very much. And change it to tin. Yeah, it's Let's get tin this worthless before. gold. Not out the of palladium. Here. Not any of the more advanced things. It's the tin. And then the other, uh, the other topic of interest that we've uh, gotten a lot of mileage out of is the, you know, excessive tobacco use. Mm -hmm. And is that something that you kind of picked up on? And do you have a favorite? tobacco moment in the uh in the first two books i didn't even notice um no, i'm just i think it's so good i think can i have two i'm going to sure go, i think go the first two. one is guest is out. harry selden during the first uh like appearance casually saying you can smoke if you want to in here <laughs> like making making a point during his initial soliloquy to pause and acknowledge and and welcome those you know that are a hundred years past his death to be like please light up if you'd like to <laughs> i mean he's just establishing that he's a yeah. cool dude yeah. right like you can have, two, you have to, you have to do them right after each other in traditional foundation fashion <laughs> I just imagine him like in this like wheelchair -y thing with like an <laughs> afghan on his lap, and he's like, "Just smoke if you got him, bros. Smoke when we got him." <laughs> like I'm already dead. I'm not worried about secondhand smoke. So that's number one, and I've completely forgotten number two because number one is so good. Oh, 
I think it was when they go into the mayor and Ebling miss. He's such a rebel scientist. He like barges in the door and he's arguing about having his coat redone because it's been damaged by the security guards. But really what makes him so tough is the fact that he's smoking inside of the non-smoking room and he's aware of it and he's continuing to do it. And the mayor of the planet hasn't stopped him. I think that like using that trope of I smoke in this office and nobody stops me. And that makes me the coolest person in the world as a rebel scientist. I think that's my other favorite tobacco moment. And the mayor who doesn't smoke, you know, I liked him. I thought he was very effective. Orderly. (laughs) Orderly. He's neither effective nor brutal. Apparently, according to Eisenhower. Exactly. He has no redeeming characteristics. He's very organized. His desk is very organized. His garden has beautiful flowers in it. Very gardening. He uses his lunch break to garden. Lunch break is more like afternoon, you know, evening break. Dude doesn't even smoke. What is he doing? He's like, what a loser. So, you know, I mean, we've bounced around quite a bit. I think we've hit kind of the, the key topics here. I'd like to just take a pause and, you know, I did this last season. Um, we have an award on this show, Mike, if you, if you weren't aware, it's called the Prescience Award and it's awarded to the podcast co-host who says the most um, accurate predictions of what will happen later in the story before it happens. And, you know, I'm assuming in most cases that we are being fair to each other and not reading ahead and then trying to say something clever. And uh, so I'm hoping that Peter's outbursts of yelling at co-hosts for reading ahead means that he actually isn't reading ahead yeah. and not he's that he's deflecting. trying to cover I'm that barely he read reading the book already. I'm barely reading supposed to be. But... <laughs> I'm taking that all for granted. I'm I'm putting my trust in in Peter's outward actions as sincere. Um, I I would like to you know again announce a prescient award winner, and that winner is again Peter. Congratulations, Peter! Oh, I didn't think I was going to get it this time. Yeah, so I, you know, I had to think about it a little bit, um, but I did, you know, I went back and as usual, you know, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on our historical episodes to make sure I don't forget what's going on. Um, And uh, I think there's a few things I'd just like to highlight that you predicted. There's one carryover, the prediction of Forel, who you were talking about in book one, that actually appeared as a character in like the second or third chapter (laughs) of book two. Um, I'm happy. Which what a character. All of us very want to speak about two dimensional characters. <laughs> Both dimensions being girth, apparently. You're such a one dimensional man. Um, you also, you, I don't know if you remember this, but you uh, verbalized suspicion uh, of Rios that he had set the stage for his own undoing very early in part one. Um, and you said, in, in addition, you said things were over when the king's privy secretary Broderick was sent out to the to the front to uh to monitor Rios. Uh I think you had immediate suspicion of Devers. I, I know personally that took me a little while to piece together like what he was doing there, but you were immediately, you know, suspect of his his role in, you know, becoming a prisoner of Rios. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the most drives me. I remember that. Yeah, there was there was like two uh, noted suspicions around uh, Magnifico. I mean, from the beginning, you were kind of called him out as a potential, and I think Dan, you you called him our uh, Kaiser Soze potentially a Kaiser Which, Soze situation. That's why I thought Dan was going to get the award because I was like, he totally Kaiser Soze. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Dan. Came, I mean, Dan. You know, to be fair, Dan was kind of open to the idea right away and uh but you had kind of laid the laid the tracks there so um and then but the real Very thing that kind of blew me away was uh when you made the comment about the visisonor and th- i think this is what really tipped the scales for you peter is mm-hmm. when we talked about the visisonor in that chapter your comment was it sounds like a weapon of war <laughs> and that's exactly how Magnifico used it towards the end of the book to conquer an entire planet by mind melting everybody using by amplifying his powers through the Visisonor. So congratulations. Yeah, I, I, you yeah. have retained the title and well, well, you've retained the title for another season. You're the most prescient man in the podcast. I know this is my executive call here, but I did actually add another award okay. to, to the podcast this season. So, you know, Dan, you came in fresh, you hit the ground running, you contributed some of the best summaries that the Such Nerd podcast has ever seen, especially way better than Peter's summaries. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I can look into the future, but I'm bad at summarizing the past. Yeah, I just can't, can't filter down all the all It's the more thoughts. your illiteracy, Peter. I think that's really what's just getting in your way. Hmm. So, you know, I really think we owe the the fact that the, you know, season two is like a breath of fresh air. You've really, you know, breathed fresh life into the pace and the depth of the dialogue on the podcast this season. And even if it made my editing job a massive challenge, I think it was a step forward in the universe of sci-fi novel commentary amateur podcasting. With that in mind, I would like to award you dan the award for the newest sci-fi novel commentary amateur podcaster on the such nerds podcast congratulations thank you thank you they can only hope that this does not result in my imminent demise if i do go down I will go down proudly clutching this award. Thank you. I I would like to say that you know the only podcast co-host that i've lost so far has has not received an award at the end of their first season. So <laughs> <laughs> so how do we feel about this book, gentlemen? Uh, Mike, since you're our, our newest um, joinee, what do you think? Is it is it worth reading? Absolutely. It okay. still continues to be a game-changing story, just completely unlike anything else I'd ever read before when I read it. And even to this day, I think, with a lot of the folks and a lot of the great sci-fi writers that have followed this theme, it still sets the the groundwork for it. And book two, it it builds, it grows, and despite my frustrations personally around how the protagonist changes from the timeline and the sociological piece to the actual characters. I think it's done really well. I think the characters are great. I think it's very intriguing and it's created enough mystery that I really want to see what happens next. Nice. And I strongly recommend it for anybody that's into sci-fi. So 
I'm going to go ahead and uh, be prescient here and say that I'm suspicious of this new Michael character and I'm worried about him. <laughs> I don't trust his motives. Dude doesn't even smoke. <laughs> doesn't even smoke. Well, no, this is a smoking area, so I'm not smoking. I only do it in places where I'm forbidden. Yeah, okay. nice. Verboten. He's call. like the Ev- All right, so he's not a mag- Magnifico. He's a uh, Evelyn-ness character. Go. He's on his gardening break, so he doesn't smoke right now. So getting back to the question at hand, Dan. Yes. What do you have to say about the book? Is it worth reading? Did you like it? Definitely worth reading. I did like it. The end of this book, I was reading paragraph by paragraph, just trying not to turn the pages because of how sort of gripping the, the resolution finally was. So usually, you know, if, if the book's not good or you don't like it and there's no engagement with the characters, you get to the end and you're like, look, let's just wrap it up. But I was riveted by the final pages just trying to find out how it was going to go which was the way to tell me that that it was a, a book that i actually you know in, enjoyed working with and reading you know it's really sets the stage fantastically for the next book you know with uh, the continuation of the rivalry between the mule and the characters the uh, sort of mystery of the second foundation it's almost like you kind of have a, a whole new leaf to turn over in the in the selden universe so there's a lot to really look forward to so i'm very much excited to to read the next one sounds good jason what do you think about the uh the novel about the novel yes i thought it was uh it was almost i think it was almost like the same amount of pages as the first novel if i recall correctly that's an interesting nearly equivalent um no i'm just i'm Jay, your um, asperger's is showing yeah sorry so but it felt like it went smoother it felt like a faster you know journey but also kind of a richer experience you know getting to know some of the characters more and yeah it was a little bit uh it it was far less uneven with the less smash cutting to you know the future 30 years 50 years down the road which was nice there was a little bit of kind of lulls and and peaks but I think that's good, you know, to have a little bit of dynamics in the story and to contrast, you know, the exciting moments, which it definitely accelerated towards the end for me as well. Uh, to Dan's point, I was approaching the end and I was like, why haven't we met the mule yet? Like, we keep dwelling on this Magnifico character. What's the deal? Is this like, is this some ruse or is is he the mule? And I did look at the last page. So I realized that uh, Magnifico was the mule because that's what he kind of unloads at the last page. But when he said, and that's because I, the last line of the last page is like, and that's why I call myself the mule. So what I spoiled for myself was that he was the mule, but not, I didn't quite understand the why until I actually made my way through the entire, you know, paragraph uh, into in the entire last chapter to get the sense of what he's really talking about there. But I would still say that I enjoyed the book and would recommend it maybe even more so, but especially obviously if you've read the first one, don't stop there. Even if it wasn't your thing, like there's more to this, a different kind of angle. There's a little bit more character development. You know, if you're the kind of person that prefers character development, definitely book two offers a little bit more of that. And it carries the story forward, which is uh, which is nice. So, and it's about the same amount of pages as I mentioned. So it's not going to take you that much longer. <laughs> and you learn a lot about about equine genetics and procreation that you don't might not necessarily know. 
before you start, at least for me. That's how it went. So what do you, what did you think, Peter? Well, let me let me frame it. Uh, let me ask it again because I know I kind of poked a little bit earlier. But was this not the worst book you've ever read? No, I actually I did enjoy, especially like the last half of the of the second part of the book. It it genuinely was engaging, and I would some people call that the last quarter. Yeah, someone say it called the last quarter of the book, and I understand okay. that like there's like this, there seems to be this kind of recurring theme generally with Isomoff's writing, at least in the stuff that I find the most engaging is that there's this real like almost like crawl build <clears throat> towards something, and then in the end it's like starts getting really exciting. So I really enjoyed the last portion of the book, and I think it was worth reading, and I think it was well executed. Yeah, I you know. I I really I think this book was was really good. Uh, I would dare to say it could have used a better editor. I think there was probably some things that could have been pared down and expanded upon uh, that would have done a lot for the novel. But I am curious to see what's going to happen next. Right. Do you boys have anything else to add tonight? I would like to thank Mike for joining us tonight. He came in cold. He read both novels like you know, with the quickness to be able to join us tonight, added some color and some flavor and a different perspective. And that's always welcome on the such nerds podcast. Um, and I wish you the best in this world and the next Mike. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've loved being on here. I've loved the chance to share my opinion on all of this and, and kind of brainstorm and laugh with all of you guys. So thank you for having me. Um, it sounds like I this might be one of my last transmissions to the public. So, um, you know, remember me. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real uh, pleasure having you on the podcast this evening. <laughs> it was great having you on Old Time Radio. Thank you for being on our podcast. Well, that's been it for this season of the Such Nerds podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I have been your host, Peter, with my guest host, Mike. And my beautiful co-host, Dan, and the lovely Jason. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Cheers. Good night, everybody. All right, I'm out of here.